The war on Ukraine today enters its second year. We'll be hearing two rather different perspectives on tonight's show, one from a Ukrainian sociologist and one from an international relations scholar. I'm also joined throughout the show by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? Very well, Michael. Looking forward to some really important insights from two great guests. And we're going to take you through some key events in the war so far. And we're going to do so via news reports from the time. So this is how Channel 4 covered the Russian invasion precisely a year ago today. The dawn chorus that no one wants to hear. Air raid sirens in Kyiv, signaling that the full-scale invasion of a European country in the year 2022 was well underway. This was Antonov International Airport, 15 miles from the center. And these were Russian helicopter gunships. This airfield is now being used to bring in the troops that will storm the capital. This was the airbase at Melitopol in the southeast. Russia's strategy dominate the airspace by preventing the Ukrainian air force from using it. And this was in the far west, about a hundred miles from the Polish border. So much of this large country is under attack that the best option for escape from the capital, population three million, is still to head west towards Poland in the traffic jam from hell. At the central bus station, a mayhem of desperate departures in a year defined by them. First Kabul, now Kyiv. These people are running away from the Russian soldiers knocking at the doors of the capital. Running to any bus that will take them, always west. Now imagine doing this with your kids. Your whole past, present and future suddenly reduced to one suitcase and one burning question. Can you make it onto that bus? Where's this well, bus? Well, they're going? trying to get to Poland. To Poland. Yeah, and fly from Poland. But to be honest, I can't see it happening. Yeah. So we don't have any buses to take us anywhere. Are you scared? I'm okay for now. I'm alive. But you never know what will happen like in five minutes. In the days and weeks after the outbreak of war, an estimated 18 million people would leave Ukraine. But Putin's shock and awe tactics didn't work. Kiev wasn't taken. The Zelensky government wasn't overthrown. And 10 million of those refugees have now returned to their home country. I mean, the failure of Putin's initial push, though, didn't save Ukrainians from the horrors of war. This is an ITV report from April. Today, the drive into Bucha looks very different to those first hours after it was liberated on the 1st of April. This was the first evidence of the crimes perpetrated here. The bodies of civilians left decomposing where they fell. For more than six weeks, the world's attention has focused on the horrors unfolding in Ukraine. In particular, the town of Bucha to the west of Kyiv. We've investigated three separate atrocities in Bucha to give a sense of the widespread, indiscriminate murder being carried out by the Russian army. The first involves a man whose body was found at this mass grave next to St Andrew's Church, where investigators are beginning to uncover the scale of the slaughter in Bucha during the nearly month-long Russian occupation. 
Volodymyr Stefyanko is just one of dozens of relatives looking for answers. The number of bodies buried here is unknown, but it's thought there are at least 115. They were hurriedly interred here by locals. Most were shot on the streets of Bucha. Now each is being carefully recovered for a full forensic examination. We're with Volodymyr as he waits to find out if his brother Dimitro is among the dead. As the face of each is uncovered, suddenly the awful moment of recognition. The retreat from Kyiv meant the war became focused in the south and the east of the country, and Mariupol became the centre of that battle. This is a report from the BBC, also from April last year. This is a city reduced to darkness and death. Russia's troops now occupy the theatre that was bombed as hundreds sheltered. Their six-week siege of Mariupol has brought it to the brink of falling. State TV in Moscow showed these unverified pictures claiming they are Ukrainian soldiers surrendering. But the city's defenders posted their own videos holed up in the port and a factory, still fighting, but their position seems desperate. Russia's siege has killed thousands of civilians in Mariupol and unleashed an appalling struggle for survival for residents that remain. And these are the children of President Putin's war. This hospital, north of the front line, is taking patients from Mariupol and, like those in this ward, from elsewhere in the south and east. The doctors tell me they're treating children with injuries they usually see in soldiers straight from the battlefield. Mariupol would go on to fall, and that meant for the following months the front lines in the war would be relatively fixed. That was until September, when the Ukrainians made a surprisingly successful counteroffensive, as reported here by Channel 4 News. Signs that Russian forces have left in a hurry as the first Ukrainian troops roll into streets long lost in months of fighting. This is the key rail hub of Kupiansk, an eastern city transformed by war into Russia's key logistical hub. Its recapture is a significant victory for Ukraine. After months of relentless grind, a remarkable Ukrainian offensive is pushing Moscow out of a region they've occupied since the early days of its invasion. UK defence officials estimate Ukrainian forces have punched 50 kilometres into Russian-held territory. In village after village, locals have to see it to believe it. as Ukrainian flags are raised again over government buildings and in town squares. This banner being torn down says, we are with Russia, one people. After more than six months of Russian occupation, relief and joy. <laughs> night after night, hiding in homes and basements, hoping for this moment. Good boys, they cry. We've been praying for your return. After that offensive ground to a halt, the front lines of the conflict essentially froze again. And this was the state of play as of November last year. In the red are the areas still held by Russia. In the purple are the areas regained by Ukraine. 
And despite talk of a Russian spring offensive, we haven't seen those lines move in any meaningful way since then to now. So that's where we find ourselves now. To talk about the war one year on, the first perspective I sought was from Taras Fadirko. Taras is a lecturer in sociology and East European studies at the University of Glasgow. He researches war, media and oligarchy in Ukraine. I started by asking Taras how Ukrainian society was holding up after a year at war. It is holding up despite the attempts of the Russian forces to degrade the resistance, both militarily and in terms of the, sort of the civilian resolve. Uh, polls that are coming in uh, just in these days indicate that there's still the same significant proportion of Ukrainians who aren't willing to make any territorial concessions to Russia to end the war. They also show that about 60% of Ukrainians or even more have in this year contributed financially or in kind to uh, supporting the military or uh, people who have been displaced by the fighting. So that a very, very significant mobilization of the Ukrainian society. And even though resources are diminishing, we can see that there's still efforts to, to maintain that level of, uh, of commitment from the Ukrainian society. And it's largely horizontal. What do you mean by horizontal, sorry? You mean it's not sort of imposed from the top? You're sort of saying this is somewhat grassroots. Is that what you mean by that? It's democratic, uh, bottom-up uh, self-organization, sometimes to complement, sometimes to supplement state institutions. And it's something that I think determines the way in which uh, Ukraine has responded to uh, the invasion, because in the battle for Kyiv and other um, kind of early chapters of the war, um, that, that kind of bottom-up mobilization was crucial in upholding the Ukrainian resistance. And it's something that also supported the Ukrainian state and supported the Ukrainian kind of total answer to Russia's total war on the country. Do we have an idea of the extent of casualties on the Ukrainian side? I mean, I, I understand, you know, it, it's not something which is sort of published because it, it, it's not supposed to be too open. But I mean, what are the estimates? What are we working with here? I think at this point, we are, in terms of military casualties, uh, casualties in the military, we're probably working with a figure of over 100,000 of uh, killed in action and wounded and, and missing. Uh, we don't know because the Ukrainian military and the government aren't publishing these figures. We only are working with estimates published from time to time by different figures in the West, uh, anonymous sources. Um, there aren't any official um, indications or estimates. And this, I think the same works for official figures for civilian casualties. Reliable figures published by international institutions such as the UN are reliable in the sense that they are precise, but they are um, complete underestimates of what went on. I think for Mariupol, uh, which is one of the bloodiest and uh, most damaging and destructive chapters of the war, the UN's estimate was in the low thousands, and the mayor of the Ukrainian deputy mayor of Mariupol has estimated uh, over 20,000 uh, people killed in the city during the siege. And that shows you a mismatch between the real figures, that, that the real figures as they might be, and the figures that are known at the moment and confirmed by different kinds of institutions. So I think there's a very, very broad spectrum of, of possible figures that there's nothing certain at the moment. You've painted a picture of a, a society which is, you know, as yet fairly united. I suppose some people might say it's united sort of behind a set of demands which are somewhat implausible. I suppose I'll focus on the, the idea that there'll be no territorial concessions. Now, sort of looking at this from a military perspective, from an international relations perspective, it seems unlikely that Ukraine is ever going to win back Crimea. And so is it possible that concessions being made will cause a splinter within Ukrainian society, how do you sort of see the possibility of compromise down the line being handled? I think, first of all, it's a society that is united in its answer 
and its response to an invasion. And then when it comes down the line to thinking through possible ways out, there, there will be, of course, disagreements and kind of political and different political forces inside the country that will be trying to exploit it for from that perspective, perhaps for the public good, sometimes for specific political gains vis-a-vis the government or, uh, or other opponents. The shape of any settlement and agreement, societal agreement to, to that kind of settlement would depend on where Ukraine is militarily vis-a-vis Russia. I think there would have been, uh, so if Ukraine could not continue fighting against Russia, there potentially would be more agreement to, uh, to accept Russia's demands. Right now, it looks like Ukraine can improve its situation on the ground and get militarily what it couldn't get diplomatically from Russia, because Russia is just simply not willing to revise its goals and to kind of abandon the goals of taking over big parts of Ukraine. I mean, all the discussions focus on Crimea, but Crimea is implausible for many Ukrainians. And I think I think there's some a significant part of the population who kind of are skeptical about taking over of Crimea, even though they maybe aren't willing to admit that. But a lot more importantly, for, for our purposes, is what's going to happen to territories that Russia has occupied after the 24th of February 2022, Zaporizhia, parts of uh, Kherson Oblast, parts of Mykolaiv Oblast, Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Uh, and these are the parts that have nothing to do with, uh, the, the reconquest of which has nothing to do with the reconquest of Crimea as such. And it's a lot more realistic and important for us as international left to focus on getting Russian forces out of there than to think about hypothetical scenarios about what's going to happen to Crimea. So that's interesting, I suppose. You're sort of saying that the desire for a or the willingness to accept concessions, let's say, depends on how how well Ukraine are doing on the battlefield, which does make it seem as if, I mean, you could argue, does that not support the positions of some of those people on the left in the West who are saying the longer you arm Ukraine, the longer this conflict is is going to go on? Because why would they make any concessions when they're being delivered heavy weaponry? I mean, how would you respond to that? I wouldn't, because uh, to be honest, I do not care about the position of those people on the left who have no idea what it means to live in a country that's been torn by an invading force. I'm sorry for this brute answer, but um, that's all that there is to it. There is no united left. Uh, there are very different perspectives on the left about what should be done in the country. And for people who have zero empathy to those who choose to fight and those who choose to uh, kind of put up resistance to an invading force and who tell them, no, do not do that, and instead accept negotiated solution. Um, I think these people have no empathy, and we do not. We should not um, engage with them if they do not engage bona fide with demands from the ground from those who are actually going through this invasion. Do you think then, sort of from that perspective, that the military aid from the West should be unlimited? Do you, do you think that we we should be exporting fighter jets to Ukraine at this point in time? The aid to Ukraine is subject to all kinds of political calculations and limitations, one of them being the sort of the supposed red line of not allowing Ukraine's attack on the Russian core territory, which of course doesn't include territories that Russia occupies since 2014. So it seems in, uh, from the perspective of the US and Britain, I think that subject to these kinds of requirements and, and limitations not to provoke Russia into a mass horror scenario of a response, Ukraine should be enabled in all possible ways uh, because that would improve its situation on the battlefield. The problem is not with Ukraine and Ukraine's having arms. The problem is with the fact that Russia has consistently shown itself unable to accept defeat and, uh, and basically in a game that is the war is asking to cheat. It says 
we cannot lose. We cannot afford to lose. Therefore, let us win. Um, I just cannot accept this sort of position. And I'm not, uh, I suppose, I'm, you know, being a Ukrainian citizen and, and having family there and friends on the front line, um, socialist and not, uh, I cannot conceive of a scenario where um, I would kind of with clean heart say, yeah, let, let us prioritize stopping the war and letting Russia win over um, trying to repel it with all possible force. That was Taras Vadirko speaking to me earlier. Um, let's look at some of the latest statements from the political leaders involved. So the man who launched this invasion was Vladimir Putin. He spoke yesterday to a football stadium full of his supporters. There are battles going on right now on our historical frontiers for our people. Courageous warriors are fighting, just like the ones that are standing here with us now. They are battling bravely and heroically. We are proud of them. Let's give them three cheers. That was Putin rallying support at home. Volodymyr Zelensky also gave um, a speech to Ukrainians earlier today, but he also gave a press conference to the world's media, specifically a, a message directed to Russia, but it was the world's media who, who, was, who were there, talking a lot, as he does, about wanting more military support from the West, fair play. Ukraine's biggest backer is, of course, the United States, who has so far delivered Ukraine $50 billion worth of military aid. Earlier this week, to mark the one-year anniversary of the outbreak of war, Joe Biden made a surprise visit to Kyiv, where he said this. Putin thought Ukraine was weak and the West was divided. As you know, Mr. President, I said to you in the beginning, he's counting on us not sticking together. He was counting on the inability to keep NATO united. He was counting on us not to be able to bring in others on the side of Ukraine. He thought he could outlast us. I don't think he's thinking that right now. God knows what he's thinking, but I don't think he's thinking that. China is the world's other major superpower. They've remained relatively neutral in the conflict so far and have now denied American reports that they're considering sending weapons to Russia. China has today put forward what it calls a 12-point peace plan. These are the 12 points. The sovereignty of all countries is respected, abandoning the Cold War mentality, ceasing hostilities, resuming peace talks, resolving the humanitarian crisis, protecting civilians and prisoners of war, keeping nuclear power plants safe, reducing strategic risks, facilitating grain exports, stopping unilateral sanctions, keeping industrial and supply chains stable, and promoting post-conflict reconstruction. Zelensky has welcomed China's involvement, but the plan has been met with scepticism from the West. To discuss the role of the great powers in the war in Ukraine, I spoke earlier to Anatole Levin. Anatole is a former correspondent in the countries of the former Soviet Union and is now at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. I started by asking what he makes of China's 12-point plan for peace. Well, I was quite disappointed with it, I must say. Uh, I had hoped for something more concrete in terms of you know, proposals for, for example, uh, referenda in the occupied areas under United Nations uh, supervision, recommendations uh, for demilitarized zones. Uh, th this was a, a, you know, a perfectly respectable statement of, of principles, but it wasn't in any way a concrete roadmap for, for peace, unfortunately. That said, I think it's a great pity that the um, American official response to it was so automatically dismissive. 
and also that the United States chose this particular moment to accuse the Chinese of being about to give uh, arms supplies to, to, to Russia, because it's been pretty striking, actually, that despite all this talk of Chinese-Russian partnership, the Chinese so far have done almost nothing, actually, to support the Russians. They've given them a measure of help diplomatically. But even there, if you look at the last United Nations vote, um, the Chinese abstained. Well, so did India, which is a partner of the United States. So um, I think America should try harder, or Biden administration should try harder to work with the Chinese on pursuing peace in Ukraine. It does seem, you know, despite, I suppose, I think some fear-mongering about the Chinese state, really, it does seem that they are maintaining basically a pretty neutral stance. Does that mean that time is on Ukraine's side? So if you look at this in terms of who's got which allies, like Russia, yes, very faintly it's got China as an ally, but they're not providing them with any arms as yet. Ukraine's got the entire United West. Does that not mean that time is on Ukraine's side and the longer this goes on, the the more depleted Russia's military capacity will be and the more strengthened Ukraine's will be? Perhaps, but you know, on the other hand, most estimates suggest that the Ukrainian economy has declined by perhaps 35% as a result of the war. And of course, um, millions of Ukrainians have become refugees. Uh, the Russian economy has declined by less than one-tenth of that. And of course, Russia is uh, three and a half times the size of Ukrainian population. So leaving you know, Western aid aside, um, Russia you know, is still in a basically stronger position. Um, and of course, uh, Russia is um, still benefiting from selling its, uh, its energy and raw materials across the world outside the West. So um, it's not at all clear, you know, whose side time is on. The other thing is that I am assured by Chinese officials, semi-official people I've talked to, that China did not want this war and did not give it a green light. And of course, they also say that as a result of Russian defeats, Russia's prestige and Putin's prestige have gone down a great deal in China. But they also say that if uh, they became convinced that it was American and Western policy to back Ukraine to a complete defeat of Russia, leading to the overthrow of the Putin regime and possibly the disintegration of the Russian state, then China would have to step in with much greater aid to Russia because everyone I talked to in China said that you know, China regards the preservation of Russia as a, as a United State and a great power as a vital Chinese interest because uh, otherwise China would find itself really seriously isolated strategically in the world. Now, that's interesting you say that. So I think often what's talked about in terms of were Ukraine to manage to get close to total victory is that Putin would get close to pressing the nuclear button because he'd be so desperate. You seem to be suggesting that what would actually happen in that moment is that China would get more actively involved. And are you suggesting that could include, yeah, I suppose, the, the supply of weapons to, to Russia in, in that event? Yes, I think in that event, it could very well do that. Incidentally, I mean, the, these two scenarios are not mutually exclusive. I think in those circumstances, Putin would not move straight to nuclear weapons. Um, 
but uh, he could do something else, to be, which would begin a cycle of escalation that could perhaps end in nuclear war. For example, he could take revenge for the destruction of North Stream by attacking Western infrastructure. He could try to disable, or uh, Russia could certainly do that, disable uh, American satellites, which have given so much intelligence aid to Ukraine. Um, now, neither of those things would you know, automatically trigger a nuclear war. But since America would certainly respond to them, one can easily see the beginning of a, of a cycle of escalation that could end with nuclear war. Are they not to some degree mutually exclusive? Because as, as far as I understand it, the Chinese position seems to be, we, we will support you. We don't want Russia to lose. We also don't particularly want them to win, but we don't want them to lose. But our red line is nuclear escalation. So is it, would Putin not have to make some sort of decision between going down this escalatory route or keeping the Chinese on side? Could he do both? Going to nuclear weapons would be maybe the, you know, the 10th step in this process of escalation. No, I mean, that, that is why he wouldn't do that uh, to start with, because the, the Chinese would be against it. And of course, it would be catastrophic for Russia's um, position internationally. And of course, it would risk the annihilation of Russia in a nuclear war. But as I say, you know, one can well imagine Russia starting with other steps and then American responding, Russia responding to America's response, and, um, you know, away you go. Uh, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, neither side began their moves with the intention of triggering a nuclear war. Uh, but as we know, through, you know, reactions to each other's moves, we came very, very close to that. I want to know, I suppose, your broader thoughts about the West's involvement and the West's sort of positioning on this. Biden seemed very pleased to be able to say in Kyiv that the West have stuck together and they have been surprisingly united. Also been interesting to see how they seem to be graduating the deadliness of the weapons they, they, they provide. So it started off with long-range missiles, now you get tanks, now we're talking about whether or not it will be fighter jets. I mean, is this a, a sort of strategic sequence of events that makes sense to you? Well, I mean, it certainly makes sense from America's point of view. Uh, the Western uh, alliance has reconsolidated under American control. And um, I mean, to, in many ways, a remarkable extent. I, I, I wouldn't like to say for sure who blew up the North Stream pipeline, but it is very striking that the, the German media have simply gone into lockstep you know, de denying that it can possibly have been uh, America that did it. And I mean, that does reflect now the, the complete security dependency, once again, uh, of, uh, of America on the United States. So this, yes, I mean, this war has been a, um, a tremendous success for the United States. And of course, also a tremendous success for the US energy industry, which, um, you know, has now replaced Russia as the chief provider of um, of gas and, to a lesser extent, oil to Europe. Whether this is uh, these are developments that have turned out well for Europe, well, that's a different question. In discussion now, as I've said, is, is fighter jets. I don't think there has been much sort of uh, talk from the Americans or from the British that they're going to send them sort of up-to-date, really good fighter jets. But if that were to happen... How big an escalation would that be seen to be from, from Russia's side and what could the consequences be? It, it would depend, I think, to a considerable extent, what the Ukrainians did with them. Because, of course, one of the points 
about these jets is that they would be capable of striking, well, striking into Crimea, but also in principle, uh, striking deep into the territory of Russia itself, which on the whole, with some exceptions, um, and because of American pressure, the Ukrainians have not done. Now, I have to say, I mean, obviously, the Ukrainians have a perfect right to do this. Since Russia has invaded Ukraine, Ukraine has the right under international law to strike back into Russia. But undoubtedly, in those circumstances, I think Russia would seek to escalate in some way, uh, in basically in, in an effort to frighten the West into seeking a compromise peace, and a compromise peace that Putin could pretend to the Russian people uh, was some kind of Russian victory, because of course, the Putin regime desperately needs to be able to, to claim that this disastrous war um, has produced something for Russia. You've long been advocate of sort of speeding up the process by which we get to some peace accord. Is, is that still your position? And how likely do you think that is? Well, I don't think that a, a peace accord um, in terms of, uh, you know, of a permanent solution of this war is at all likely at present um, because the position of the two sides is too far apart. However, I mean, if for many months the two sides go on battering away at each other along roughly the present lines, you know, in, in the style of the First World War, as it's been said, um, then uh, I, I think you will find desire for a, for a ceasefire on all sides uh, growing. And so one may find, end up with, you know, the kind of ceasefire we've had in Korea ever since 1953, um, in Kashmir for most of the time since 1948, and so on. So no, no peace settlement, but um, an end to the, at least a provisional end to the major fighting. I mean, for myself, I mean, what I would very much like to insert into, the, into this peace process is concern for what the local people themselves in uh, these areas of eastern and southern Ukraine want. Now, that is, of course, very difficult now to establish because they're under Russian occupation and there are so many refugees. But in the long run, as far as I can see, the only solution that would both have you know, a measure of international and democratic legitimacy and could produce you know, a compromise peace between Ukraine and Russia uh, <clears throat> is one that is based on the will of of local people. And uh, from all the evidence, uh, I think one could expect that some of the Russian-occupied areas uh, would undoubtedly wish to return to Ukraine, and others, including Crimea, would wish to stick with Russia. That was Anatole Lehman speaking to me earlier today. One great power we haven't talked too much about this evening is the UK. Our Foreign Secretary James Cleverly spoke today at a UN Security Council session on Ukraine. Here's how he closed his remarks. One year on, one year into this terrible, terrible war, let us in this chamber send a clear message. Our support for Ukraine is not and will never be time limited. Our defence of the UN Charter is not and will never be time limited. We will keep the promises that we made to the UN Charter and to the Ukrainian people. 
and we will give the Ukrainians the help that they need for as long as it takes until Ukraine prevails, until its sovereignty and territorial integrity is restored, and until this charter of this organization is upheld. Responding to the James Cleverly point about the UN Charter and apparently how it's sacrosanct, none less than Kofi Annan, who was then UN General Secretary, Secretary General rather, in 2003, said that the Iraq War completely breached the UN Charter. So the idea that Britain and the United States must uphold the UN Charter, the very person at the apex of the UN, at the top of the organization, the top dog, you know, the equivalent of the CEO said that they did the precise opposite in living memory. So that's the first thing. And I'm only responding to that first because that's the last clip we played. It's clearly not the most important thing about this whole conversation. But it does get to the, the, the mendacity and duplicity of a great deal of US and British foreign policy. That is, however, secondary, obviously, to another illegal war of aggression, which is what the war in Iraq was, which is the present invasion by Russia into Ukraine. I thought you had two really contrasting and interesting accounts there, Michael. And I was very sympathetic to a lot of things that Anatole Levin was saying in regards to if there is at some point a total war and Russia is staring at political and military collapse and there is an impetus by the Western allies to exercise regime change in Russia, then I think that could be very dangerous. I think often the, da the dangers of this thing have been overstated. Putin clearly has a vested interest in, in ramping up the possibility of nuclear war. That said, it's not impossible. You know, but it, it's it's highly, highly unlikely. But I do think in the in the case of a massive military defeat, retreat back into what is present day Russia, annexation of Crimea would obviously be a part of that. Then a mass mobilization of the Russian army and some potentially defensive war. I think China would obviously have a major interest in that not happening for two reasons. Anatole said, because of course, Russia is a great power on the UN Security Council as a major exporter of arms and, and whatnot to other countries in the global south. It anchors China because it gives them a bit more legitimacy. You know, there are three rising powers in the world, India, China, Russia. India is a democratic country, but it has a m many problems. China is a market economy, but it obviously doesn't have a liberal democratic government. And Russia doesn't have really a, a liberal democratic government, and it doesn't really have a functioning market economy. It's really a petro-state. It lives off the exports of energy resources, basically. So the, these are three countries which are actually quite at odds with the sort of historic superpowers of the Atlantic. Obviously, prior to 1945, the, the British, the French, and then, of course, the United States thereafter. So they have very different political models, but I think China does look like much more of an outlier if Russia disappears. So I agree with that. But I would also say, look, no country is going to want a, you know, a neighbor with nuclear weapons 145 million people are falling into a state of political and economic collapse. No country would want that. So I do think it's quite likely that China would take a very, very, very different position on things were that to happen. I don't think it's likely that the Russian political and military establishment will collapse. But my God, it looks a lot more likely than it did 12 months ago. In terms of Russia's desires, I mean, this wasn't really touched upon with Anatoly even. And I, it's, I haven't really heard in the conversation, which is, what would be the bare minimum for Russia to basically see this as a win? So it's important to say, people say, oh, it's been a, a military catastrophe for Russia. I wouldn't go that far because they've, they've added new territory to their own country. Clearly, it's been bad. It's been a farce in many instances, but I, I wouldn't call it a catastrophe. 
But I, I don't think it's sufficiently good that, yeah, Putin can sell a win. I think for that to happen, they would need cities that have been sort of, you know, historically associated with Russia, like Kherson, Odessa, for that to happen. And clearly, Odessa is going very, very far west. You're then going towards Moldova. So I think it's very, very unlikely that you're going to see a negotiated peace, which everybody talks about, everybody seemingly wants. But I think these two objectives are so far apart, Michael. On the one hand, Ukraine wants to return, I think quite justifiably, to the status quo ante pre-2014. But Russia, I think, isn't even interested in the status quo ante pre-last year, which is to say, just having Crimea. They clearly want much more too. And I'm not talking about the Donetsk regions when I say that. There is clearly a desire to annex Kherson, and, and, and I think also Odessa, like I say. Cities in the Ukrainian south gives them, uh, the Russian Navy, a greater capacity into, into mainland Europe, and they would say they're historically, culturally Russian cities. You can make that argument. I mean, that argument exists for many cities on the face of the earth. It doesn't justify annexation or, or illegal invasion. Then finally, and I actually find this in many ways the most interesting part of the whole story, Michael, because I think on the military side, it's illegal, it's unjustifiable. I think a sensible person thinks that. Nord Stream I find really interesting because there's much more ambiguity there. You know, we saw Fiona Hale, who's a very respected foreign policy, security policy expert in Washington, talking to Unheard. And she doesn't think it was the United States. She thought it might be Ukraine. And I was like, wow, that's a bit of a curveball. But whether it was the United States, whether it was Ukraine, let's just, you know, also say whether it was Russia is actually a really important conversation, Michael, because this was effectively an act of war on a major piece of European infrastructure in Western Europe for the first time really since 1945. And yet nobody in Europe seems to care. There's no major media outlets in the, in the European Union or in the UK that seem to think that the destruction of an $11, $12 billion piece of energy infrastructure is actually that important. I mean, it does tell you something, I think, quite significant and quite worrying about the state of European autonomy. Because if it was done by the Americans, and, and there is not a European statesperson or a European capital capable of at least saying, this isn't good, don't destroy our infrastructure without our knowledge, then that really does under, underscore the extent of European dependency, military security, political dependency on the United States. Add to that, of course, energy dependency over the last 12 months. And for now, people can say, well, there's Biden in the White House, there's a Democrat, he's invested in NATO, great. But when you're that politically, militarily dependent on the US, and there's the potential for a shift in the politics of that country in a presidential year, and who knows, maybe even the return of Trump, I think that has major political downsides. And I'm kind of shocked, actually, at the extent to which the Euro European public sphere isn't talking about this more. If Donald Trump had been in the White House and the Nord Stream 2 pipeline had been destroyed as it had been, would there be the same reaction from the media and from the various capitals across the European Union and London? I don't think so. You can also kind of imagine Donald Trump becoming president in 2024. And then, you know, if it was the Americans who blew it up and the Germans and the Norwegians knew, sort of making it all public and saying, and we blew up their pipeline and the, the, the idiots in Germany and Norway let us do it and didn't even say anything. And you can imagine that causing like a bit of a political nightmare in, in those countries. I mean, if he's sort of calling them weak for letting it happen. I mean, you started with your point about sort of the duplicity of, of the UK talking about the sanctity of, of, of UN 
protocols. And I actually think that it's not a side point because it's often discussed, why hasn't the whole world united behind Ukraine? Uh, why has it only been the West? And even though, as I say, I think this was an illegal war from the Russians, but the rest of the world kind of thinks, well, you've done your illegal wars as well. This is your problem. You deal with it. The China one, also very interesting. Lots of people say this is just a dictatorship backing a dictatorship. Uh, it's just authoritarians who love authoritarians. I think that's got very little to do with it, um, in fact. And I think it, it is much more to do with balances of power. And it also seems a little bit ridiculous to me that you've got the US and the UK saying China should more uncompromisingly support us in our fight against Russia, while at the same time they're saying we are going to actively try and stunt Chinese development and uh, by by putting these sanctions on sort of technology transfer. So I think you can't say we want you to ally with us in this war while we at the same time try and keep you down in the global pecking order. It's not really going to work. We could talk about this for the whole show. We are going to move on to a couple more stories, though. Bernie Sanders is in the UK promoting his new book, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. A new US senator dropped into LBC to speak to Andrew Marr. I don't have the exact statistics in my head, but we probably spend in the United States twice as much per person on health care. We spend $13,000 for every man, woman, and child. An outrageous sum of money. And yet we end up with 85 million people who are uninsured or underinsured while the insurance companies make billions and billions of dollars. The function of the American healthcare system, something you should not emulate here. The function of the American healthcare system is to make the insurance companies and the drug companies phenomenally rich. The goal should be, and it's not an easy goal, is how in a cost-effective way do you provide quality health care to all people as a human right? Not necessarily easy, but that's the goal. And it's a lot less expensive than allowing the insurance companies to get involved in order to profit off of the system. And looking at what's happening here, do, <clears throat> you, do you see a risk that Britain starts to look at the American model and go in that direction? Do not look at the American model. Please do not. Build on what you have, improve what you have. Healthcare is a human right. That's what it is. And that was established here in, what, 1948. That was an extraordinary achievement. And I understand your system has problems. Deal with those problems. But don't think that insurance companies and privatizations are going to make the situation better. They will only make it much worse. But it's such a pro-politician, because you could tell Andrew Marr's asking him, you know, and I'm sure you're following the debates on whether or not we should privatize the NHS. But it's like, I've got, do you really think I'm following what West Streeting or what um, the Tory health secretary is saying at this point in time? I'm just going to give a, my, my, my passionate answer, which is you do not want to do what we're doing. Keep your NHS. But he was also asked about Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn, I'm not saying he's the Bernie Sanders of the UK. Um, you're both very, very different politicians in many ways. But he was a very, very popular left leader who galvanized another yes. generation of people. They all came behind him. And he has now been absolutely pushed to the side of British politics to the point where he can't even stand as a Labour candidate in his own constituency. And I wonder what your reflections are on that. Well, my, I'm not going to get involved in Labour Party politics here. I don't certainly sure. know enough. But I do know Corbyn. And I think, as you indicated, uh, here's a guy who inspired a lot of younger people for a new vision for society, a lot of working class people, and his willingness to stand up to big money. Uh, and I think that is worthy of a lot of respect. Do you think it's sad that they can't run on the same ticket, he and the current? I don't understand. I, I really don't uh, what's going on with Labour Party politics. But it does seem a little bit strange to me that somebody who's been in the Labour Party his entire life was leader of the party, brought 
I saw, I understand that hundreds of thousands of people into the party is now told that he can't run. But that's about my knowledge of Labour Party politics. Sanders then appeared on Global's News Agents podcast. Um, he was asked further questions about Corbyn. I think we are, Corbyn deserves an enormous amount of credit. Is I think in the UK and in the United States, a lot of people have given up on politics. I can tell you that in the United States, historically young people do not vote in large numbers. But you know what we have seen in the last number of years? We've seen that change. So not great numbers, but a lot more young people. And I think Corbyn deserves credit for energizing whole bunches of young people, working class people. So, so the Labour Party have said, look, you can't run as our candidate at the next general election. I mean, people listening to you will think you are a member of the Democratic Party. Yes. You stand as an independent. Would you counsel Jeremy Corbyn to do the same thing? Well, I'm not going to give Jeremy advice. He will make his own decisions. But, you know, I will say again, I, you know, I'm I, I, not involved in UK politics, don't particularly know much about it. But I it bet just seems quite a bit. <laughs> well, it just seems to me to be a little bit strange that you throw a guy who was the former leader of the party out. You know, that doesn't make a lot of sense. to me. It is a little bit strange. He's got that right. It is a little bit strange. Although you could sense he didn't really want to get into the nitty gritty of internal Labour Party politics. He is an extraordinary public speaker and it is not conveyed in videos. Doesn't capture it. Does not capture it. I've never seen a better political speaker in my life in the English language. Amazing. The guy's almost 80. He talks in a register and a tone that literally everybody can understand. He uses allegories and metaphors that everybody can understand. And he's constantly, virtually every single paragraph, inverting what should be seen as right-wing shibboleths or the common sense presented by conservatives. He inverts that and uses it as a weapon against them. I'll give you one example. So I was, uh, I was at a smaller event just before the main thing. And he was just giving a, a talk. Jeremy Corbyn was there too, with his wife, Laura Alvarez. And he said, we need to redefine the idea of criminality and who is a criminal. Because I think if you're a landlord and you're throwing a tenant out because you've just raised the rent, you're a criminal. I think if you're trying to lay off workers because they're on strike to earn higher wages, you're a criminal. And it was a really impressive experience because I just thought, you know what? You could go say that on BBC Newsnight, Channel 4, LBC, GB News. You could say it to the Daily Mail, The Sun, The Guardian, The Times. It wouldn't matter. People would agree with you. And there's a real lesson there. You know, we're going to talk about the, the popularity of Bernie Sanders as a politician in the United States. He is extraordinarily popular. He was the most, you know, the most popular politician in the country in 2017 and 2018. He still is. I think in terms of active politicians. He's the second most popular in the United States at the moment amongst those still around. You know, number one is Jimmy Carter, but he's getting on now. So what it really compounded and confirmed to me was that the power of left populism and how actually when it's done right with charisma and a coherent policy agenda, it's pretty much unbeatable. And there's a reason, Michael, why the establishment in this country, and by the way, that exists within the Labour Party too, is so determined to stamp it out and for us to forget the power of left populism. Because mobilized right, like I say, with the right policy agenda, with the right people, it can absolutely steamroll legacy politics and legacy organizations. And lots of people's careers, Michael, as we found out over the last, over the last eight years in this country, lots of people's careers 
from consultancy to policy to politics to communications to journalism to punditry. Lots of people's careers depend on legacy organizations, legacy politicians doing well. They don't want left populism around because on a personal level, it obstructs their own career ambitions. It's a very powerful thing, Michael. Let's not forget it. Bernie Sanders is in the UK and where streeting is not impressed. When we've had these waves of strikes recently, you and your colleagues have been extremely tentative about going anywhere near picket lines. And for a lot of people, not just on the hard left, that seems right. Now, it's, uh, this is what, if you just listen for a second, I was talking to Bernie Sanders, yeah. who is, as it were, the American version of Jeremy Corbyn. Very different. I don't know how you have a political party that stands for anything if they don't stand with the working class of this country. And I think why so many people get demoralized and alienated from the political process is they see the people on top doing phenomenally well, and they say, who is standing with me? Who is worried about the future of my kid? whether I can afford to send my kid to college. Who is worried about whether I can pay the rent? And you need, in my view, political parties in the United States, in the UK, all over the world, who say, you know what? We're prepared to take on powerful special interests. We're going to stand with the working class, with the unions. Now, he didn't prevail in the end. There'll be more of that interview later. But he's not wrong, is he? We're not a party of protest. We're a party that wants to be in government, so we can make he's a difference for working. For he's working. talking about taking on the big vested interests of course, of and course, the vast that's, inequalities. But in that's society. what that's what Labour governments that's what Labour governments do. And with respect to Bernie Sanders, I genuinely think if he'd won the Democratic nomination, he wouldn't have beat Donald Trump at the election. America would be under Trumpism. Instead, they went for Joe Biden. And I remember all the criticism from all of the, you know, self-appointed talking heads for the left in Britain who were saying, oh, but, you know, um, yeah. Biden's boring. Biden's too centrist. Biden isn't going to deliver working people. But Look at Joe Biden's ambitious domestic plan. Yeah. Look at what he's doing to accelerate America towards net zero, to make sure that the American, uh, you know, there's, there's more buy, make, buying, making, selling uh, of American yes. goods for America. American people creating good jobs and wages. Though, to be fair, and, and he can do that because he Sanders, won. Biden he can do that because he won. pick up quite a lot of the Sanders agenda. They sat down together and they thrashed out a compromise, which is a bit like you guys sitting down with momentum and agreeing a compromise position, which I don't see happening anytime soon. Well, I think the um, comparison with momentum is very uncharitable to, to Bernie Sanders. I wouldn't put him in that bucket. But um, I do think that... Um, in terms of what a Labour government will do, and you look at those missions we've set out, I mean, it wasn't just growth, it was it was inclusive growth. That's at the heart of that and pledge growth in every part of the country. Look at what I'm saying about right. tackling health inequalities in our country. If you're serious about doing that, you have to deal with the social determinants okay. of health, poverty, poor quality housing, low wages. So Where's... we are ambitious and, and absolutely deliver. I mean, I'm, I'm a kid from a council estate. You know what is the opposite of Bernie Sanders? His words like inclusive growth. Like it doesn't mean anything, right? Credit to Joe Biden. You know, I know there'll be criticisms of his presidency, but he sort of, one thing he seemed to learn from left populism is that you do have to call out your, your enemies. You do have to call out the people who you might want to tax more, for example, right? We haven't seen that from Starmer yet. In any case, Bernie Sanders has responded to West Streeting. Uh, he did so when speaking to the News Agents podcast. After you spoke last night, there was a senior Labour politician who went on the radio, a guy called Wes Streeting, I'm sure you don't know, he's the kind of, he's, he could be the next health secretary if the Labour Party win the next general election. This is what he had to say. 
We're not a party of protest. We're a party that wants to be in government, so we can make a difference for working. For working, talking about taking on the big vested interests and the vast inequalities. But that's what that's what Labour governments. That's what Labour governments do. And with respect to Bernie Sanders, I genuinely think if he'd won the Democratic nomination, he wouldn't have beat Donald Trump at the election. America would be under Trumpism. Well, let me inform that gentleman, who I do not know, that every poll that was done during that period had me defeating Trump, and I believe I would have defeated Trump. (laughs) That man who I do not know. Um, Aaron, what can we say uh, about the flame war between Bernie Sanders and Wes Streeting? Wes Streeting is incredibly small time, which means he's probably going to be the leader of the Labour Party after Keir Starmer. He's incredibly small time. He even has to be factional against the guy who's not in the same country as him. You know, he's he's saying, we're not a party of protest, we're a party of government. Wes, would you like Bernie's formal role? He is, let me get this right, the chair of the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee. Health, Education, Labor and Pensions. That sounds like quite an important job. Sounds to me like he's probably administering quite a lot. That doesn't sound like protest, Wes. Interesting, isn't it? And he goes on about, oh, I live in a council. I'm from a council estate. Michael, Michael Walker lives in a council flat. You pay £800 a month for the privilege, Michael. That's the difference. We've all lived in council flats and council houses in London. The point is they're not free anymore. Okay? I was paying to live in a room in a council flat. I was paying £600 a month. You pay £800 a month. So the idea this is somehow cultural cachet for a permanent political class, a tiny slither of which comes, comes from council flats and houses, the ones which haven't been privatized, is obscene. And the point Sanders makes, Michael, about his popularity, in 2017, he was the most popular politician in the United States, according to YouGov. And there's a poll from Ipsos done for USA Today. In 2020, Americans were asked, let me get this up because I don't want to get the numbers wrong. Americans were asked who was most sort of congruent with their values, who agreed with their values most. 39%, this is Ipsos, 39% said Bernie Sanders. 30% said Joe Biden, 31% said Trump. So 39% of Americans said, my value is the same as Sanders in 2020, right? 30% say Biden, 31% say Trump. And as he said, in terms of actually, who would you like to be the president? Sanders was ahead. So where Streeting's arguments here are based upon fantasy in his brain, which, okay, I know that's good enough for the British media, Wes, because my goodness, they're not very good at their job. Once you're confronted, actually, with an effective politician who is a machine, by the way, to persuade conservatives and bring them left, which is Bernie Sanders, you look like an idiot. You look stupid. You look silly. Stop it. You know, stick to the factionalism. Stick to attacking the left in this country, because in that instance, at least the media will help you. But when you're out on your own, son, it doesn't end well. You look rather stupid. That was very well put. Let's wrap up there. Aaron Bastani, it's been a pleasure being joined by you this evening. It was my pleasure, Michael. Expertly hosted as ever. And I hope you're going to join me again sometime soon on a Tuesday because you're also, you are a great guest as well, but I, I think I prefer you as a host. Thanks everyone for watching this evening. Have a great weekend. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.